Let's reopen our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We just sang that we would want to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was a Baptist. If you're baptized by a Baptist preacher, you're a Baptist. He went to the Jordan River to find John the Baptist and was baptized there. And so we want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in all his ways, including the doctrine of baptism. The apostle, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, argues in various ways in the different books of, that he wrote in the New Testament. And he made appeals to some of the practical things at times to bring to bear the, their consciences of his hearers and his readers. And in Romans chapter 6, he brings to bear the event of our baptisms to answer the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers it by appealing to baptism. And so in these verses, we have the nature of baptism, the mode of baptism, the meaning of baptism, all laid out for us in Romans 6. There is no sprinkling here, and there are no infants here. These are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that have chosen to follow Him by the public ordinance of identification with Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection because we show a likeness of it, as the Apostle writes here, in our watery grave in which we are laid and raised from in water baptism. The question in verse 1, what shall we say then? After hearing... All the grace of God in verses chapters 1 through 5, the question could be, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The apostle answers in the negative. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We, we need to ask, what does it mean to be dead to sin in the second question that we find in verse 2? What does it mean when the apostle gives answer to verse 1 with another question in verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How can we continue to sin since we're dead to sin? In what sense are we dead to sin? This is not the eternal sense of God's predestinating grace. It's not the legal sense of Jesus dying on the cross. It's not the vital sense of the Holy Spirit giving us a sinless nature. It's not final glorification when we'll be free from even the presence of sin. It's something else. And the next number of verses tell us what it is. It is the figurative death to sin that we declared and identified with when we were baptized. So that the Apostle goes on to answer his question of verse 2, How shall we that are dead to sin, live any longer therein, this way. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? Have you forgotten the basics of your Christian profession, that when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were then baptized into Him to be identified with Him, and that included being identified with His death, because you were laid into a watery grave, like he was into a grave in the ground. Therefore, verse 4, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like, see it's like something, it's a picture, it's a figure, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. We have the word like in verse 4. We have the word likeness twice in verse 5. Baptism is figurative because it is symbolic of what Jesus Christ did. And we do it to identify with Jesus Christ and what he did, declaring that we're going to do the same thing in our lives. He died and was buried because of sin to put an end to sin. Then he rose from the dead, showing his victory over sin, rose up into heaven, and lives the rest of an eternal life in glory to God in perfect and pure holiness. When we are baptized, we identify with that Christ 
who died to sin once and now lives to God for eternity. And we declare that we are dying to sin and our old sinful self to rise to live a resurrected life unto God, just like Jesus Christ did. Our sins were laid on him on the tree. He died and paid the full penalty of our sins to God. He rose from the dead to live a life of holiness and righteousness. We choose in baptism to show a symbolic picture of that very event. We are laid underwater in a burial of a watery grave. And we are raised back up again. And the pictures are threefold. They are all of burial and resurrection. They show Jesus' burial to sin once and his resurrected life to live unto God. And the apostle is going to continue to repeat and emphasize this point over the next eight verses through verse 13. We then show a picture of what we are doing. We are burying our old man, our formal way of, our former way of living, our sins in order to rise to walk in a new life. And a third picture that we show in baptism is that we believe that even if we are buried in the ground, our physical bodies are buried in the ground, that Jesus Christ is coming back and will resurrect us from the dead. He will resurrect dead physical bodies. All of that is in the symbolism of baptism, of a burial and a resurrection from water. That's why we're Baptists. We're not Baptists for any other reason. We don't care what the Southern Baptist Convention believes or teaches. We're Baptists because the Bible describes baptism. The Bible, starting in the Gospel of Matthew, describes a man bursting on the scene, dressed like a wild man, a Nazarene from his mother's womb, a Nazarite, didn't drink wine, clothed with a leather girdle, living in the wilderness, and baptizing people in the Jordan River. Now, you don't need the Jordan River, which is a major river in the Middle East, if you're not immersing. And we know what baptism means because we've already settled that issue by leaving it up with the Greeks who know the Greek of baptizo. We know that baptism is by immersion because as we look through the Bible, it's down in the water, it's in the river, It's where there was much water. It shows burial. It shows a likeness of his death. It shows a likeness of his resurrection. It is a figure of his resurrection in 1 Peter 3.21. And it is an argument to be appealed to to prove the resurrection of dead bodies in 1 Corinthians 15.29. Let's go over a few of those points separately. But first of all, look at the verses again, 3-5. through Romans 6, 3 through 5, are the apostles' inspired appeal to immersion as our identifying ordinance that keeps us from sinning or continuing in sin like we may have once lived. Because baptism, when it's immersion, is showing a death and a burial. When we lay the person under the water, that's the same way we lay them in a casket and lay them in the ground. We are burying the person. What part of them are we burying? We are burying their sinful lifestyle. We are burying their sins. We are burying their old man that was crucified with Jesus Christ. As verse 6 will teach as we go past verse 5 next Lord's Day. When we raise that body up out of the ground, it's the same as if a person were resurrected from the dead and rose up out of their casket through the soil and was walking again on their feet. And that's a picture of Jesus Christ rising from the dead, and it's a picture of us rising to walk in a new life. And it is a glorious, beautiful picture. It is a shame that so many... First of all, Christians do not understand the doctrine of baptism. Then it's a shame that there are so many Baptists who don't appreciate their doctrine of baptism. Can we in a few minutes just revel together in the grace of God showing us the truth of this holy, wonderful ordinance and yet keep in mind at all times that the most important thing is that we go out of this place and live a baptized life. And what do I mean by a baptized life? I mean that we have killed and buried our old man under the water. 
Because that's the symbolic picture. In Christ, by identifying with Him, we are killing and burying our former lifestyle. And then a baptized life is one of resurrection. We are walking in a new life. Because baptism showed we buried our sins with Christ and we're risen to walk with Christ. Verse 3 of Romans 6. Know ye not. Over the years, I have emphasized baptism. I love being in a church that practices the whole counsel of God. We will have a praise feast and drink wine. That doesn't come out of the same pulpit where men are defending the doctrine of baptism. Baptists don't drink wine, at least in this part of the country. We have a night in which servants in the church help take care of children so that wives can put into practice everything the Bible teaches about being a good wife. We have praise feasts. We don't have musical instruments, but we know the doctrine of baptism. God has given us a set of the ancient landmarks that is rare indeed. As soon as you go through, and I've just mentioned a few, you just cut out 99.99% of all churches you can find anywhere in just those few identifying marks. You add the holy days of the Roman Catholic Church, salvation by the free, predestinating grace of God through Jesus Christ's death for the elect alone, and you've narrowed the crowd even more. We are blessed abundantly. Add to it the King James Bible and no charismatic gifts after 70 A.D. and a proper understanding of Matthew 24. We are blessed. We're in such a small minority, it's scary. But I'm not very scared. I'm just, it's, we're just thanking the Lord. Matthew 6, know ye not. All of that was to say this. We had better teach baptism so that we all know it. The Apostle Paul assumes that they were to know something about baptism. And it is a shame that young children are hustled through the waters of baptism in so many churches, and the church does not fully appreciate the ordinance and all that the symbolism is designed to show. We want to understand it, and the Apostle expects us to understand it. Know ye not? Are you still confused? Have you forgotten about the ordinance of baptism? He's going to use the word knowing this in verse 6. He's In verse 9, he's going to say knowing that. We are supposed to know what Jesus Christ did for us in the way of dying to sin once and living now unto God. And we are supposed to understand that baptism is a picture of that so that when we are baptized, we are declaring, I'm killing my sinful self, and burying it under the water to rise to live in a resurrected life. So we teach baptism. And if you come back on Wednesday night and I teach you more on baptism with overhead projections so that I can take you through some verses and show you word by word where they have been corrupted to steal this holy doctrine from us, I hope you won't resent it or think that I can't think of any other subject. I can think of too many subjects. But when I go into Romans 6 and the Apostle says three times in the matter of ten verses, know ye not, knowing this, knowing that. There are things that we must understand and remember about baptism. And when you lay me in the ground because I am a Baptist, when you lay me in the ground, I will rise from the dead by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming back for us. When you do that, I'll have a smile on my face if all you young men will remember the doctrine of baptism and never compromise that doctrine. There are 2.2 billion people on earth out of the 6.7 billion inhabitants of this planet who call themselves Christians. Out of that 2.2 billion, only 100 million understand that baptism is for believers by immersion in water. 5% understand the subject and the mode of baptism. When we say the subject of baptism, we mean the person that is to be baptized. It's not infants. It's a believer. It's a believer with a very active conscience. 
and a conscience that comprehends what Jesus Christ did for him in dying to sin once and rising to live unto God. And the mode is the means of baptism or the method of how baptism takes place. It's by immersion or submerging, sub, submerging or by dipping a person underwater and raising them up again. We are to know that. We are to know that the administrator, which is not in this passage, has to be an ordained preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one can just baptize willy-nilly. If a man can baptize his children, there is as much scriptural authority for the children to baptize their father. As soon as the children baptize their father, then the mother can baptize the family pets. Because once you start down the road of no Bible verse guiding you, then how do you stop? And once they started down the road with the error that baptism saves, they couldn't stop. As soon as you imbibe the error that baptism saves, you are dead doctrinally. You are ruined. You are corrupt. Because then you will alter the ordinance in any way that your parishioners think you should in order to save their children or to save their relatives that are bedridden. So you invent sprinkling. You live in a climate where it's too cold. Listen, our ancestors didn't care that they were in the Alps hiding. There was no water too cold for baptism. So what if you're cold once? You're cold for the Lord Jesus Christ. His baptism was far more severe than you being baptized in cold water. He took his baptism at the cross of Calvary. And that's what it was called because he was overwhelmed by all thy waves and thy billows have gone over me. Right. You say, is that in the Bible too? About a ba-? Yes, it is. It's in the Bible. Of course it is. Amen. The Bible's consistent. When the Bible says that they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, what's a cloud made out of? Water. Do you walk on clouds or was the clouds over top of them? When the Red Sea stood up on its side, stood up and piled up on both sides of the Israelites, were they down in, under, and submerged, immersed, and buried underwater? That's simple. That's all too simple. Know ye not. We want to understand these things about baptism. Know ye not that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, when we're baptized, how do we go into Jesus Christ? It says so. We were baptized into Jesus Christ. Well, that's not election because we were put in Christ before the world began, before we had being. It can't be justification. That took place at the cross. We were chosen in Him, but we weren't even around yet. It can't be regeneration because regeneration is a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit apart from our will. It can't be glorification who will put us in the presence of Christ. That hasn't happened yet. How does baptism put us into Christ? It doesn't put us into Him eternally, legally, vitally, or finally. It puts us into Him practically. It's how we identify with Him by saying, Jesus Christ is my Savior. He's my Lord and my Master, and I will follow Him with the rest of my life. We do that by baptism. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 would put it in very similar words. As the Apostle is consistent throughout all his epistles... Galatians 3.27 sounds like this. For as many of you as have been, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. At what event do we put Christ on and identify with Him as our Savior and our Lord and that we're going to live according to His doctrine at baptism? The order is simple. It's given in Matthew 28. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Three steps in the ordinance of the gospel and gospel preaching. Teach. How much? Teaching sufficient to show men the Son of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, their only hope of salvation, and the Lord of their life. And I'm not talking about lordship salvation. I'm talking about lordship gospel. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And that their lives ought to be conformed to Him. 
And like John the Baptist answered the three categories of men that came to him, there is something in the gospel for every one of us to lay aside before we're baptized. We lay aside our sins. In Ephesus, they burned their books of witchcraft. And the value was 50,000 pieces of silver. They left their idols. It tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Thessalonians turned from their idols to wait for the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. What have you turned from in your life when you were baptized? What do you need to turn from in your life today in order to be faithful to your baptism? The order, teach, then baptize, then teach all things whatsoever I have commanded you. All the details of the ordinances of the gospel come after baptism. But there's a teaching that comes before baptism because baptism is only for people who have been taught and who have believed. Why didn't it say go baptize all nations and then teach them at confirmation? It was pointed out to me at break time that it says, Know ye not that so many of us as have godparents in Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. No, it doesn't say that. This is the faith of individuals who submitted to gospel baptism by an apostle. It's not a godparent exercising faith on their behalf. Do you know what you have to invent as soon as you invent the idea that baptism saves? Then you sprinkle babies because mommies don't like babies in caskets with them going to hell. And the man who originated the doctrine of infant baptism was St. Augustine, and he said babies that weren't baptized went to hell. Now the Catholic Church knew that was not palatable for most mommies. And so it invented a place called limbo for babies that weren't baptized. Now Pope Benedict XVI has taken away limbo. He just says all babies, whether they're baptized or not, go to heaven. You know, he's only been reigning for a few years on his throne in Rome. It all starts with the error that baptism saves. As soon as you believe baptism saves, then you start altering the other commandments, and you end up with godparents. You end up with intrauterine devices for women to baptize their babies in their womb, lest they have a miscarriage and that baby not be saved. You want pictures of them? Go online. Intrauterine baptisms of the Roman Catholic Church. Once you believe that baptism saves, then you baptize babies because in the past so many died in childhood. As soon as you believe that baptism saves, then you add to the Word of God sprinkling or pouring because there are some that are sick and bedridden. So how do you baptize an ancient parent before they die if you believe baptism saves and they haven't been baptized. You can't submerge them, or you think you can't. If I'm on my deathbed and baptism saves, drop me in. But baptism doesn't save, so don't drop me and put me in the ground because I believe the testimony of my Water baptism that Jesus Christ is coming back for me. Do you understand what happens when you imbibe the error that baptism saves? Did God put in the Bible some verses that sound like baptism saves? Does the Bible say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Does the Bible say, Saul, now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Does it say that? Does it say, Repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? Does it say that? Does it say in John 3, 5, Except ye be born of water and of the Spirit, ye cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven? Does it say that in the Bible? Praise God it says that. Do you know why it says that? To help 95% of 2.2 billion Christians believe a lie. Would God send strong delusion for people to believe a lie? He absolutely would. Has he done so on baptism? Did he know that verses like that would help encourage and comfort people who believe that baptism saves to believe that heresy? Did he know that? Or is he ignorant of what takes place in the affairs of men? Could he have written the Bible more plainly? Could he have spoken without parables? Is the Pope a Catholic? Yes, yes, and yes. But he didn't do that because he gave us 
the doctrine of baptism. When Jesus spoke in parables, do you remember the sword that He brought down through the crowd? They said, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus said, because it is not given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now come over here and let me tell you what that parable meant. Does that impress you at all? Does that please you at all? A sword came down through that crowd and he put his disciples on one side and he explained it to them and he spoke to the crowd in parables so that they wouldn't understand. Why does he have verses in the Bible that sound like baptism saves? So that 95% of Christians can believe a lie. And so that we can rejoice because we read the whole Bible and we know that baptism does not save us except figuratively. Is there a figurative salvation in baptism? Yes. Where does it say that in the Bible? The word figure. 1 Peter 3.21 Before we turn there, let's just keep looking right here. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. That is why we bury underwater at baptism because we're showing identification with Jesus Christ death. I believe that the Son of God came into this world and He died for sin, for my sins in particular, and rose again. I believe that. I believe that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for my sins, and He died for my sins, and was buried for my sins, and then rose from the dead three days and three nights later. Therefore, verse 4, we are buried. Now what kind of a burial is a sprinkling? If we took a dead corpse and laid him on the sidewalk and sprinkled a little dirt in his head, it'll stink. It's corrupt. It's a curse in the Bible. To be tossed out without a proper burial in the Bible is a horrible thing. That isn't any burial. There's a burial in baptism. And only Baptists have a burial in their baptism. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism. There is, in water baptism, a symbol of the burial of Jesus Christ. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That light, notice, it doesn't put us in contact with the reality. It is a likeness of what He did that was real. Ours is symbolic. That light, as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There is a picture here. There's a likeness to something. Jesus did it in the reality. Jesus died and was buried for sin in reality. We show a likeness of it. And so we better bury someone just like Jesus was buried and raise them up again just like Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death. Now what ordinance has a planting in it that is like the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our doctrine of baptism. A seed, when it is planted, is put under the ground. If you lay a seed on the sidewalk, it's not going to sprout much for you. It's not going to grow very tall. You put it down under the ground. How is a planting like a death? Because we put the body down under like a seed... Because Jesus was put down under the ground after He died, He was buried. And there's a glorious hint here by the Holy Spirit of God that tells us to compare spiritual things with spiritual. What is death to a Christian? It is a planting so that we can get our new bodies. Hinted at here. Not the main thought. The main thought is, are we going to live resurrected lives when we come up out of the water? For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, brethren, here's how much I let context guide my interpretation of Scripture. The future tense of the second half of verse 5, the future tense of the second half of verse 5, I do not believe refers to the resurrection of dead bodies. I believe that refers to us living resurrected lives because that's what Paul keeps his argument about all the way through the 13th verse. Because look at verse 6. Knowing this, the planting of verse 5 and the resurrection of verse 5 must be explained by verse 6. Knowing this, 
that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. The issue is living a holy life. And I believe verse 5 is as much on track with that as 4, 3, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Why is it in the future tense? It's in the future tense to tell you this. Only if you are properly baptized with the proper understanding of it will you come up out of the water to live the proper changed life. If we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, if we have been planted properly understanding the doctrine of baptism, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. If we understand that our baptism was to bury our sinful life to, to die with Christ, to crucify our old man, to put to death and to bury our sins, then we shall rise to walk in a new life. Then we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. If we grasp our relationship to His death by baptism, we're also going to grasp our relationship to His resurrected life. There's the three verses. Well, how, how do you read that if you're a Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Methodist, or Catholic? What in the world do you do? You fudge. And I've given you the tools so that you can go see them fudge. You can watch them twist in their chairs even though they're all long dead and become Baptists. You know, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, and Catholics, those that have any true faith at all, they become Baptists at their funerals. Because they're buried in the ground and the only hope for them is that there's a resurrection out of that ground which we declare all along in our ordinance of baptism. Amen. David, you were with me. Remember how much fun we had with Jonathan Peary at his father's funeral? Now I know that it's not very nice when a man is burying his father to walk up to him and in the line there that's giving him condolences for the death of his father and whisper in his ear, now he's a Baptist. The father of a builder in this city. Because, listen brethren, if you don't have a picture in the ordinance that God designed to show a picture of resurrection, why is your hope in the resurrection? The apostle Paul would appeal to that even when he's arguing the resurrection of the body. Look at the words that we have here. The burial. With, into Christ. Into his death. With his death. A planting. A likeness. Like Jesus was raised up from the dead. We don't literally raise anyone up. We don't legally or vitally connect anyone to Jesus Christ's death. Our baptism doesn't do that. That's all by the grace of God. Baptism is a figurative, symbolic representation of what Jesus did for us. Isn't that the same as the Lord's Supper? We don't contact Jesus' blood through the Lord's Supper. It's just a symbol of the blood of our Lord. The bread is not His literal body. It's just a symbol of His body. Right. Look at us as Baptists. Those are, the, those are two symbolic ordinances in the church. But those who are sacramentarians or sacramentalists who call the ordinances of the church sacraments, oh, now we've changed things. Don't you ever let that word go down in this church. There is no word in the Bible called a sacrament. And don't you let an ordinance of the gospel become a sacrament, even in word. Right. There is no sacrament in the Lord's Supper or baptism. The word sacrament means an outward sign that conveys inward grace. That is what Catholics and others believe about the word sacrament. An outward sign like the Lord's Supper or baptism that does something to us on the inside. No. We start on the inside with faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and we're baptized to show a symbolic relationship to Jesus and His death and His resurrection. Right. We start on the inside with a conscience made good by hearing the gospel. And baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Right. We come to the Lord's table with our insides already good, our faith established in our hearts, our minds ready to examine ourselves and to remember the Lord's death till He comes by an outward symbolic ordinance. There is no inward grace conveyed. We are not sacramentalists. We reject holy matrimony. We believe in Christian marriage. 
But we reject holy matrimony. Holy matrimony are the words of the Roman Catholic Church describing the sacrament of marriage. Never get confused about these things. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Let me, those of you that read Colossians 3 last night, here's the cheat sheet to help you understand the first verse of Colossians 3. Do you remember the first verse? I'll read it to you. If ye then be risen with Christ. Hmm. If ye then be risen with Christ. I haven't risen in my body yet with Christ because I haven't even died yet in my body. If ye then be risen with Christ. What rising is the apostle talking about? The same rising in Romans 6. He's consistent. He's the same apostle with one motivating spirit for his words. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. If we are risen with Christ, if we have resurrected lives like he did, we ought to be focused on the God of heaven just like he is. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead. Well, how they become dead? How were dead men reading his epistle? Because they were dead the same way Romans 6 says they were dead. How shall we, that are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Are you following me? we gotta, we got to solve a dilemma here. We've got dead men who are risen with Christ. Colossians 2.12 Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. What kind of people are baptized? What's the subject of baptism in verse 12? The subject. What do they have? It's a five-letter word that starts with F. Faith. They have faith in what? The operation of God. What was the operation of God? Sending His Son Jesus Christ for sin and raising Him from the dead. And it says, who raised Him from the dead. What's the mode of baptism in Colossians 2.12? The method or the means of getting it done. It looks like a, a burial. Buried with Him in baptism. Wherein also, meaning in baptism there's another half because you don't want to be left down into the water. Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. Then when you read Colossians 3.1, If ye then be risen with Christ, there's the rising. There is verse 3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. How are they dead? They are dead figuratively by the ordinance of baptism where they identified with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. The proper subject of baptism is someone that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were to just sit down and read the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, every time you find baptism, you find those that believed and repented at hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ before they were baptized. There is no infant baptism in the New Testament. They will take verses like, Forbid not the little children to come unto me. Well, listen, Jesus wouldn't, Jesus didn't baptize. If Jesus believed in infant baptism, do you know what he'd done with with, with those parents? If that verse has anything to do with baptism, do you know what Jesus would have said? Don't, don't come to me! Take them to John! He wasn't talking about baptism. The disciples didn't want children around. They didn't want young people around. And Jesus said, let them come to me. And Jesus would teach them and bless them. But there wasn't a baptism involved. He'd have told them to go to his disciples. Hey, disciples, take these children down to the pond, the pool, the river, and baptize them. There's no baptism in those words. They read in the Bible that somebody in their household was baptized. And they automatically assume that they had a nursery and a daycare there with 10 to 20 infants in cribs. And they were all brought out and sprinkled. You read the rest of the Bible to find out about household baptisms. The only people an apostle would have baptized were old enough to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and have a conscience about the gospel that was ready to settle on the Lord Jesus Christ for what He has done for them and what they were going to do for Him. So they're servants. 
maidservants, men servants, teenagers, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, parents, cousins, nephews. What do you think? Everybody in the history of the world has always lived in single-family dwelling places? Hello? Yeah, they had households. There's no implication there whatsoever. And if you ever try to read into a verse like that, that there must have been infants baptized by sprinkling, then you're, go- you're arguing against the rest of the testimony of the New Testament. The proper subject baptism can only be administered to a subject of sufficient age and ability to repent, believe the gospel, and answer God with their own conscience, not the conscience of a godparent. And they must specifically and intelligently do so in order to be baptized. What was preached to the eunuch before he knew he could be baptized? Jesus. Who preached it to him? Philip the Evangelist. From what chapter of the Bible? Isaiah 53. Let the gospel order be understood. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. No infants. But the main point that Paul's making in Romans 6 is the mode of baptism. The mode of baptism is to immerse or submerge or dip a person entirely under the water and raise them up again. Any other mode is not baptism, and it has no scriptural authority. Because it needs to show what Jesus Christ did for sin and did for God and what we're going to do for Him and what we believe He's going to do for us in the great day of the resurrection. Baptism is a figure. Now let's look at that verse, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. And my brethren, I, I am on this subject most irritated by the ignorance of 1 Peter 3.21. It is the best verse in the Bible on baptism. How can I buy a book at a Christian bookstore about baptism that doesn't even have 1 Peter 3.21 in it? How is that possible? Because this verse says too much. They don't like it. And if you, if the Lord... Depending on what the Lord leads me to do on Wednesday evening, we may take this and it would not harm you one bit to understand what they have done to this verse. I'm just going to say it briefly. I've said it to you before. I love this verse. This says more about baptism in one place than anywhere else in the Bible. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This verse tells us three things about baptism. Baptism is figurative. It says the like figure. Modern versions of the Bible say that baptism was prefigured by Noah's Ark in verse 20. No, it says the like figure. There's two figures. Noah's ark was a figure of our salvation, and baptism is a figure of our salvation. Those of you that like to learn, I hope you're with me, and I hope you understand this. I'm going to show you false Bible versions if we do this on Wednesday evening. The like figure, there's two. Noah's ark literally saved Noah. But Noah's ark also figuratively saved Noah. God put Noah in it, And God shut the door, and God kept everyone else out. There was a figurative salvation of us being in Christ Jesus that was in the ark. There will be more on that later. There's another figure. It's baptism. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now see, here's the explanation for the verses that say baptism saves. How does it save us? Figuratively. It saves us figuratively. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. It saves us figuratively because it shows what Jesus Christ did to put away sin. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Ignore what's in the parentheses for the moment by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's how we were saved. He was buried for our justification, and raised again for our justification. Romans 4.25 It's His death, burial, and resurrection that saves us. 
And when we're baptized, we show a figurative picture, a symbolic picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. The like figure, baptism saves us figuratively by a picture of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Now inside the parentheses, there's just a little bit of matter inside the parentheses. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not wash away our sins. Literally. It only washes away our sins figuratively. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Modern versions of the Bible. It doesn't wash the dirt off your body. Who in the history of the world thought that baptism was to get clean? That is so ridiculous, but I love that little clause there. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not wash away our sins. Baptism figuratively shows us how it did wash away our sins. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you can only be resurrected from death and burial. What else does it say in the parentheses? But the answer of a good conscience toward God. Do you know what the new versions say? But the request to God for a good conscience. The request to God for a good conscience? No. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. What gives us a good conscience? We hear the gospel of Romans 1 and we're condemned. Then we hear the gospel of Romans 3 and we know that Jesus Christ has died for us to put away our sins and our conscience is made good. Hebrews chapter 9 describes it in detail about how the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't make the worshipers thereunto perfect in their consciences, but hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ does so. And so with a conscience good toward God, because Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again, we give God the answer of our good conscience by a symbolic likeness of what Jesus did for us and of how we're going to live for Him. We know it doesn't wash away our sins because it doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. We know it's a figurative salvation of how we were literally and actually saved in reality by Jesus Christ. And it's the answer of a good conscience, meaning it's someone old enough to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and have a conscience that can be convicted of sinfulness and know that Jesus Christ has been interposed by God to cover His guilt and that He's going to live for God from this point forward. That conscience shows believers' baptism. Baptists believe in believers' baptism because you need to be a believer before you're baptized. This verse has baptism as a figure, so the mode has to be burial and resurrection because it's a figure of Jesus' resurrection. It does not wash away sin because it says it does not put away the filth of the flesh. Three, the subject has to be a believer because they have to have an active conscience in submitting to baptism. What do they do? First, they make verse 20 the figure of verse 21, that Noah's ark was a figure of baptism, taking away the figure of baptism itself. Two, baptism doesn't put away the dirt of the body. It still takes away your sins, but you don't get clean. You need to take a shower afterwards. Three, it is a request to God for a good conscience rather than the answer to God of a good conscience. Brethren, that is by corruption. And that is Bible corruption of a more subtle nature than just ripping out Acts 8.37. Let's go to Acts 8.37. I need to wrap this up for today. Acts chapter 8. Philip has been sent by the Holy Spirit to meet a man in a chariot on his way from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia where he served Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He's reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't know... What he's reading, he doesn't understand if Isaiah is speaking about himself or about another man. Philip jumps up there with him and preaches to him Jesus. Philip presents the gospel. Philip would have told him about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that he died for our sins, as you were reading in Isaiah 53, because it says in Isaiah 53 that he was not cut off for his own transgression, but our iniquities were laid upon him. All that would have been preached to the eunuch. Philip would have told that eunuch about what had taken place in Jerusalem. That Jesus rose from the dead. That that chapter, Isaiah 53, sounds pretty horrible. But God has put Jesus Christ at His own right hand. And He has poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is hinted at in the last two verses of Isaiah 53, on the church. And I was sent to you out of the church at Jerusalem, where there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and been baptized in His name in a picture of His burial and resurrection. All that would have been explained in the chariot. 
the eunuch. Says that's a wonderful message. As he reaches down and finds his canteen of warm water, that's a wonderful message. As he hands his canteen to Philip and says, please baptize me. Please baptize me. And so Philip takes that canteen of warm water and sprinkles a little bit on his forehead. I say that's a whole lot of wasted effort. Why not just spit in his face and rub it in the form of a cross on his forehead with your big fat thumb? What happened? I love my King James Bible. What happened? See. Philip, look. See. There's an oasis. See. Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? There's enough water. Why didn't he do this? See, here is water. I've got a canteen. See, here is water. And they stopped the chariot. Why did they stop the chariot? Why didn't he baptize them while they kept moving? Because they needed to get out of it and they didn't like to get out of moving vehicles. What did they do once they stopped the chariot? Are you in Acts chapter 8? They both went down into the water. Verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stand still and they went down both. Are the words of our King James Bible important? And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water. Now why they both go down in the water if all Philip had to do was scoop down and cup up a little bit in his hand and throw it in the eunuch's face? Why? Now you understand what we've done at our seminars on the Bible. I have passed out Bible versions named the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the Revised Version, the American Standard Version, the English Revised Version, and I have called on men to read us Acts 8.37. What happens? I'll call a man, I'll say, whoever has the new the NIV, please stand up. And a man will stand up, and I'll say, sir, would you please read us Acts 8.37. And you see him looking intently at his Bible. Sir, Acts 8.37. Poor man, he's not used to reading in public. And here's this minister putting pressure on him to read Acts 8.37. He can't find it for the life of him. Sir, do you see Acts 8.36? Yes. Do you see Acts 8.38? Yes. Well, read the verse in between. (laughs) Have we had some good times with our King James Bibles? Those poor... You know, those men appreciate it afterwards. You know what they want to do with an NIV? They want to take it out back and shoot it with armor-piercing 50-caliber rounds. They wouldn't need armor-piercing, but they want to use it anyway. Acts 8.37 is taken out of the Bible. We have 36. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now that is an important question. What qualifications do I have to meet in order to be baptized? The answer is in Acts 37, and they take it out. Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There can hardly be a more important verse about baptism than Acts 8.37, and it's gone. Brethren, the Lord has blessed us abundantly. Why does it tell us in the Bible, in John 3.23, that John the Baptist was baptizing in Anan near to Salem? Why does it want to tell us geographically where John the Baptist was baptizing? In in Anan, near to Salem, John 3.23. What else does it say in that verse? Because there was much water there. What do you think of a commentator that you have to read about how many animals that people had with them who were going to be baptized that needed water to drink. Why do you think it says of John the Baptist that he was baptizing in a particular place because there was much water there? Does it sound like the eunuch? See, here is water. What kind of water? The eunuch had water. You weren't in the desert without canteens of water. See, here is water. 
enough water to be immersed, enough water to be buried to show that Jesus died to sin once, and enough water to be raised out of that watery grave to show the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and brethren, to show our death to sin and our life unto God. And that is what we better take out of this day's sermons. We better walk out of this place and not just glory and rejoice that we know the doctrine of the truth of baptism and that we are in a very small minority of even those who call themselves Christians. But we need to walk out of this place and live a baptized life. And what does that mean? That we are dead to sin and alive to God. That our old man was put under those waters and our new man is what we're going to put on. We have put on the Lord Jesus Christ by being baptized in His name. And we're going to live worthy of His name. And we're going to live in the resurrected life of holiness unto God. Just like the next verses in Romans 6 are going to teach us that Jesus is living right now for us. We have identified with Him. Let's live like it. We are blessed abundantly. We understand Romans 6. We understand Acts 8.37. We understand 1 Peter 3.21. We understand those things. We have had communicated to us the ancient landmark of John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and Apostle Paul, baptism. And we're going to preserve it. But brethren, we have had communicated to us today. Paul's argument in Romans 6 is not to make sure their doctrine is right or their practice is right. That's not the main thrust. The main thrust is... Are we living baptized lives? Turn to Isaiah 66 and I close. For those of you who want to be convicted by the Word of God, you should read Isaiah 1, verses 10 through 20. You should read Malachi 1, verses 6 through 8 and 14. You should read Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. And see what God has to say about those who engage in His ordinances and then make light of it and go to their farm and go to their merchandise. I'm going to pick Isaiah 66. Thus saith the Lord, verse 1, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. That is the Ethiopian eunuch. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb, as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that gets baptized in my name, as if he offered swine's blood. He that offereth an oblation, as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. Yea, They have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions, and will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear, but they did evil before mine eyes, and chose that in which I delighted not. If you have been baptized, and you walk out of this place and go your way, Matthew 22, 5. And you go to your farm. And you go to your business. And you go to your place of employment. And you go to your merchandise. And you don't remember your baptism to live a baptized life. Your baptism is in the sight of God as if you killed a man and were guilty of murder. As if you shed, brought swine's blood into an Old Testament temple. It's as if you cut off a dog's neck. The vilest creature God knows. You cut off a dog's neck instead of a lamb. This is the word of the Lord. The heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. You can't build anything to me that impresses me. The only thing that impresses me is a poor and a contrite spirit. And do you know what a poor and contrite spirit says? I was baptized to identify with Jesus Christ. He died for sin once. To live unto God in holiness. 
I am dead to sin to live unto God in holiness. And this day I will live in holiness to my God because I have identified with His Son, Jesus Christ. We have all done that. If you live otherwise and you get wrapped up in your life this day and forget to live that holy resurrected life, you are offering swine's blood, a dog's neck, and you're guilty of murder in the sight of God. He will choose your delusions, and He will bring your fear upon you. I do not want it to happen to us as a church. I do not want it to happen to anyone in here as an individual. May God bless the preaching of His Word to convict, convert, convince you to live a conformed life to the image of Jesus Christ.